Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Hey everyone, this is Brendan Sweeney, your host of Finding the Frame. In today's episode, we have cinematographer Brendan Ugama, CSC, here to talk about his latest nominations, Mike Tyson's miniseries Mike on Hulu, and also Drake's Falling Back, and a lot more. Stay tuned. What's going on, everyone? We are back with another episode of Finding the Frame, two in one week, super crazy. We have our first ever Finding the Frame guest back, another yeah. Brendan. We love Brendan's here. Brendan Ugama, CSE, cinematographer. You might know him from Mike, Child's Play, Truth Be Told, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Riverdale, Moonshot. What's going on? It's great to have you back. Good to be here. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's been, uh, what, a little bit over a year since you were first on the show. What's yeah. been going on with you? Keeping busy, doing doing my thing, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it's been good. I see you have some nominations. We have the Canadian Society of Cinematographer Awards coming up, and you were nominated for two. Yeah. So one is, what, the 30-minute uh, segment for live-action television, and then you got music video. For that one, the first one, it was Mike on Hulu, and then Drake's Falling Back, which both were with Director X, right? Correct, yeah. That's awesome. Are you super stoked for that? Yeah, yeah you, it was good. It was a nice surprise to get those nominations, yeah. Yeah. I found it so interesting, we were just talking about this before getting into it, that their awards happen so late in the year for 2022. So do you plan on trying to get there? I hope so, yeah. My goal is to get up there. Yeah. It's nice that it is a little later. I think they. I think it's probably done strategically to be sure. outside of the chaos of it, but um, makes it easier. Yeah, it's nice yeah. to get some nominations. I know that it seems like there was a lot of great nominations this year over at the CSC. Have you had the chance to keep up with any of the other work that's being done? Yeah, I mean, I you know I know a lot of the people that have been nominated, of course, and yeah. talked to some of them, and and there's a lot of steep competition and yeah. good work, and everyone's pushing boundaries right now. Yeah, and uh, and it's good to see. Is the CSC a pretty like tight knit group of cinematographers? Do you get to keep up with them quite a bit? Like I feel like the ASC members are always like getting to meet up, go to the clubhouse, do stuff like that. Is it very similar with the CSC? 
You know, I think if you're in Toronto, maybe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I live here in LA and it's a, a little harder, but there's a group of people that yeah. I see often enough and keep in touch with. And, you know, the cinematographer community is still, right. we're all, you know. Do they have a dope clubhouse too? I don't think there's any as any like the ASC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't been to the ASC clubhouse, make sure to go to an open house because it is yeah, really cool. It's, it's a really fun cool. time to like just be able to see all of the different filmmakers. And what I love about the ASC is how they open it up for younger filmmakers, those that want to be in a position like yourself or want to be like a Shane or whoever it might be. And to be able to mingle and just chat, talk about films. Yeah. I think that's really great to just have a community like that. Yeah. And I mean, it's history, Hollywood history. Oh, yeah. Like it's been around forever and, you know, I remember the first time coming to LA, walking by it and just being awestruck by it. And yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's cool. It's That's awesome. Place. Well, let's just give everybody a brief overview. I know if you haven't had the chance, make sure to go check out Brendan's first episode. You can find it on YouTube or on the Filmmakers Academy platform. So Brendan, I know you were born in Canada, right? Could you just give us a brief overview of what like, it, would, it looked like coming up and then we'll turn into some of your projects? Sure. Yeah, i from Vancouver originally. Um, I started doing motocross videos and, and, you know, action sports Mm -hmm. mostly. And then, uh, but I always had, I always knew I wanted to make films. I was always into, into storytelling and, and I, I didn't really know at one point which way I would go, but, um, imagery has always been my thing. Like, and I was always into photography and art and drawing and, you know, just compositions and that kind of thing. And, um, I pursued that afterwards. I didn't want to stick with action sports so I pursued filmmaking and just kept pushing you know Mm -hmm. and kept building and grabbing projects whatever I could and just trying to do the best I could with each one and build on that and then came down here seven years ago and uh it's been good yeah that's awesome well we're super stoked for everything that you've been doing let's talk about your first nomination which is Mike I got the chance to watch the episode. It's episode seven, specifically titled Cannibal, that you got nominated for. What's awesome is that we get the opportunity to talk about what it's like being a DP brought on to a series that has also other DPs kind of setting the look, but you were able to make this your own. But before we get to that, when were you first introduced to this project? And what were you thinking about, oh, a story about Mike Tyson, a biography? What What were the first steps into this project? I mean, that was exciting as soon as I heard it was about Tyson and he's obviously a, you know, a name everybody knows. I remember Mm -hmm. watching his fights as a kid growing up and, you know, I got the call from a friend of mine who's a producer, Jason Roberts, and he asked me to come meet the group and and, uh, consider it. And I read the first script and had my first call with the whole group, I think, like the next day. And then I think I was on a plane two days later going down to New Orleans to, to start prep. And, um, so it was real fast for me. It was real yeah. quick, but I was excited right away. Cause I mean, it was Tyson and I knew the group behind it and they like to push boundaries and make things really unique. And I saw, um, some of the pilot episode that I thought was so brilliantly shot and directed by, uh, um, Isaiah and, and the director Craig. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I knew that was something I really wanted to be part of. Were you intimidated in any way or what were some of the challenges knowing, okay, this is already in production and they're bringing me on. You got to shoot episode seven, eight. There's already a look that's mm-hmm. set, right? What were some of your first initial thoughts of just trying to have that consistency throughout the show? Yeah. You know, it's a good question because it's extremely important to everybody. It's extremely mm-hmm. important to the producers and showrunner. It's extremely important to the director of the pilot and the cinematographer of the pilot. And I've been that person as well. I've been the DP, 
who's started the show, had to look and had other people come in and help. And the most important thing is to be able to maintain it on both sides. So it was very important to me to be able to, you know, mm-hmm. honor that and watch what they were doing and understand what it was, understand what it was that they were doing that was working so well and make sure that we could keep that going forward and, you know, put our own fingerprint on there, but, but honor the show and with the work that they did. So that was something director X and I talked a lot about is how we can do that, how we can maintain that and keep the camera moving the way that they were moving it and keep the feel the same, but you know, put our stamp on there. Yeah. And this was your first time having the opportunity to work with director X, right? Yeah. And how was that? It was great. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he's awesome. So with him, you know, and this was his first episode too. He was brought in to just do those two episodes. Yeah. So what was it like looking at the previous episodes and for cannibal, this is all about where Mike bites the ear off of kind of leading up to that whole sequence where Mike bites the ear off of Holyfield during a very infamous fight. Yeah. What was it like knowing that there was a level of like historical integrity that you wanted to put into this, make sure that it was close as possible. What was the creative process trying to build those worlds? Yeah. I mean, that was something that was very important to everybody, I think, but I know director X and I were talking a lot in prep about accuracy and the good thing with Tyson is that his whole life is on mm-hmm. YouTube. I mean, we watched just hundreds of videos, interviews, recaps of fights, full fights, everything. It's all there. And so we were able to kind of to watch all these things and pace it out and figure yeah. out what happened when and how it followed up with this next beat and how to make sure that we were keeping that going, but knowing the style of the show and the way that the fights were being kind of done, Mm -hmm. which wasn't really watching a full round from start to end. It was a little more kind of bit by bit. Yeah. And, um, but then also understanding for, for that specific moment, of course, the ear bites is understanding how we wanted to kind of translate what was going on in his head at the time. Cause that was a huge part that was in the script is like how he's seen this. He's feeling like he's getting headbutted and, and you know, these moments going into it and making sure that we were translating it correctly. So part of that for us was um, obviously where we were putting the camera, but shooting a lot of it on the Phantom so we could really slow down those moments and kind of get into his head and see in slow motion the way that he was probably feeling it, these mm-hmm. moments happening, you know, um, the headbutt coming in and, and the frustration that would happen and the re- retaliation and then the second headbutt and how he retaliated again. Yeah. So we just broke it, really just broke it down into piece by piece, but we watched all those fights and we watched all the history that we could and tried to make sure we were being truthful. Yeah, and you know, I don't actually think I've ever watched that fight. Is it pretty like obvious that he bit off his ear, not only once, but twice? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget that because I kind of forgot that. I remember seeing the fight as a kid, but um, I think a lot of people forget that there were actually two two headbutts, two bites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what is it like working with a character that is so interwoven in just the pop culture, pop culture zeitgeist, knowing that, you know, the film's built on this ego, this intensity, and, and it carries through the whole, uh, the whole series. What is it like maintaining that? But even just compositionally, was there anything that you were given just in terms of like a rule book? We want to be able to show them in this, you know, like head to toe a lot. Or is there anything that you were trying to play with to really just establish Mike compositionally? We didn't have anything that was a rule book to mm-hmm. follow. 
um, I think we wanted to to show him as the big personality that he was, yeah. you know, and, and I think a lot of that came naturally in where we put the camera, kind of keeping it low for a lot of it and just making his presence felt. And, um, you know, we, we would, the way that we kind of set up every shot, we, uh, X and I would storyboard or sorry, we would shot list everything. We shot listed pretty much the whole episode, uh, both episodes we did. And then on the day we would walk around with our phone and we would, mm-hmm previs and just shoot it all and shoot all the angles before we would commit to them and then we would look at the framing and punch in a little bit on our phone if we wanted i usually like i find i often use the you know a real viewfinder with the lens and this time we were pretty much all just recording it with our phones so we could be on the same page yeah and then once we kind of signed off on something he could go do his thing i could go do my thing and we could set it up um but that was a great way to kind of get the you know the visuals across but um we the only thing that we really, I shouldn't say the only thing, one of the main things that I wanted to make sure we carried through from the beginning was the way that the camera moved. The camera mm-hmm. was very kinetic, I felt, at the uh, moving around a lot. Like, you know, a scene with two people sitting here can often be just covered from right. 50-50 overs and overs. But in Mike, it would probably would have started out in the hall and come rushing in and found us yeah. and come around. And so we, we wanted to make sure we could maintain that kind of energy and keep it going forward and just find these new elements and new ways that we could we could do it for our episodes. Yeah, and you really felt that energy, especially I think it was a party or some some situation where Mike and the significant other that he ended up meeting when you established her, Mike came into the room and the camera wrapped around them. Yeah. And I thought that was really like it set the tone, but it also showed the presence of Mike. Yeah. And I feel like that's exactly what you were talking about, having that camera movement follow through from the first episode. And is that something that you tried to do through episode eight and then concluding it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And in terms for the fight sequences, you know, that's choreographed. I'd love to know what the challenges were being able to shoot that. Were you, have you ever done any type of scenes or sequences like that before? I mean, I've done enough fight sequences for sure. I've done, um, you know, yeah, I've done a lot of fights and some boxing stuff, but, um, what I always try and do when I'm working with with uh, with fights and stunt choreographers, stunt coordinators rather, is is working together, mm-hmm. finding out what strengths they think they can bring to it. The, talk to them about the angles that we're thinking and how we can kind of tweak things or how we should tweak the camera to work for the angle, mm-hmm. and just all come together. And I, I really try to make sure that I'm listening to what what they need because they're also they're there for a reason you know, they know how to sell hits and, and do all that kind of stuff with the actors and work with them. So I want to make sure that I'm listening to that and then, and, and can kind of contribute to it. Right. Or if, if I really need something, then we talk about it and they tweak it for us. And but, you were, and you were saying that the tools that you use specifically to get those slow motion shots were the phantom, but what was the camera package that you rolled out with? Uh, so we had a, we were shooting everything on a mini LF mm-hmm. and we had, uh, the uh, cook full frame anamorphics. Is that what the whole show used? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had K35s for a little bit, but I think pretty much all of 95% of what I did was on the, on the cooks. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and how do you feel that the anamorphics really played into the story? I thought they were great. I, it was my, actually my first time working with those lenses and I loved them. And I actually ended up bringing them on to another show I did called them. Mm-hmm. And we shot uh, full frame, um, mini LF rather, and, and those full frame lenses. 
That's awesome. Yeah. And when you were trying to light these, you know, historical events, were you going for a realistic approach of what it actually looked like during some of the fights or when he was in his like training setting? Or did you get inspiration from somewhere else to be able to start planning that out? Yeah, I we kept that a little we didn't I didn't specifically try to recreate mm-hmm. the exact look, which is generally a little more bright, flat. Yeah. Um and I kind of stayed away from that. It was toppy mostly. And we had like, basically I just kind of had a big soft box like this over top that was much bigger. And then a bunch of park hands yeah. on trusses around and I could pick which ones to have on and off. Um, so I kept trying to keep the contrast where I could, but I definitely just try to make it nice and soft with, um, stadium feeling, but, yeah. but I didn't try to keep it historical. And I think that was kind of the way that it, the first few episodes were as well. Yeah. What were some of the fixtures that you deployed on this job? Um, overall, I, you know what, I did a lot of the show with, I kind of approached a lot of it with this kind of top light idea of just mm-hmm. kind of having soft top light where I could. So I, I didn't, um, so I did a lot of light mats. Like I, I would, yeah. like we'd glue them or sorry, we'd, We'd take them and we'd staple them in or screw them in or whatever to the ceiling above the actors. And we would just kind of try and hide them wherever I could. And it was really just about trying to make sure that they had these pools of light that they could walk into when we needed. And the rest of the time it was, you know, we'd augment with things from outside the window. But I really tried to keep it contained that way rather than, you know, lights right in their eyes. I wanted to make sure that the shadow, their eyes caused a little bit of shadows and, you know. Um, kept a little moody that way. Yeah. yeah. And was there any VFX that were using during any of the fight sequences? Were you doing any like set extensions for the arena? What was some, how was some of that orchestrated? Yeah. Basically all of the deep crowd was, yeah. was uh, VFX. So we had, we were heavy COVID restrictions at the time of shooting. So I think we could only have 120 people or something like that for background at a time. So we would place them where we needed when we do close-ups of like Don King and the crowd and all the people around them. But otherwise it was just, we relied on, on uh, CG elements yeah. back there. So we had, you know, you could, you could see stuff that we couldn't shoot. Like we yeah. had the crane base back there and they'd just be like, don't worry, we're racing it and yeah. putting it out of there. So um, that's why we could just kind of keep rolling 360 on the, on the ring. And yeah. You know. And what does some of the prep work look like when you're working with the VFX team for some of our members or audience that wants to be able to do more work like that, shoot on a larger stage, knowing that, that they might have to do like set extensions. What does it look like for the cinematographer to prep leading into a shoot day? I think for me on this one, for me, it was really about just being as um, open book with the VFX team as we could to know what we were doing, what everyone wanted, what the ultimate goal would be, you know, where the project, what the shot was going to look like at the end and make sure that I could provide them with enough detail there that they needed to be able to cut them out properly and, or anything along those lines. And that's really for visual effects in general. That's really what I try to do is make sure that I have a deep understanding of what they need. Yeah. And then I make sure that they understand what I need and what I'm intending and the colors and things that we're using so that there's a, that it's as seamless as possible. Because mm-hmm. if they get to, you know, I can, I see it sometimes where it feels like there's one idea being done on the day and then in post six months later, another idea comes out and it never fully integrates properly. And so the more that we can all be together on the same page, then, then that just makes everyone's final job better 
And so I don't want to be the person that's saying something strict on the day, like, no, I'm not going to do it that way. You got to figure it out. And then they can't. And now the shot looks bad. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That has to be hard to orchestrate. And, you know, I've never been in a situation like that myself, but what happens if you feel like it's not coming together? Is there anything that a a cinematographer can do to help navigate that with the VFX team saying, listen, I don't think that this is going to be, this is going to quite work out in the way that you think it is. Is there a way to properly approach that? Definitely. I think you just have to know what your, what it is that you're pinpointing and you have to know what the solution is. Mm-hmm. If you're going into something saying that there's a problem, uh, you don't think it's going to work and they say, well, what is, and you say, I don't know, then right. you did nothing, <laughs> it, you know, but like if yeah. you go in and that's anything in film, right? Like if you go up to someone, a director or anyone with an idea and you're like, or, or with a comment like, oh, this shot's not quite, I don't know. I think we could do this better. And they're like, well, what is it? I'm like, I don't know. It's not mm-hmm. going to, it's not going to help. So right. Anything like that, just know what it is. Visualize it. You got to be able to visualize everything. That's what I, I try to do. It's like if I'm if I'm feeling something's not right, take a moment to yourself, think about what what it is that's bugging you, and then think about what it would look like in your mind better, or you know how you can make it look better, and then translate that to people. Mm-hmm. And the more people can understand the way you're saying it, then then the better. That's awesome. You know, and then mm-hmm. always, you know get your director on board because if your director sees it that way, if your director doesn't see it that way and he or she is the one that's sitting in post for six months later, uh, if it's on a film and they wanted something else, then it's not going to be what you wanted anyway. So you Mm -hmm. have to get on board with everybody. Mm -hmm. And when it was for the ear biting, I'm assuming there's a level of VFX that goes into that. How was that orchestrated with the phantom and being able to, it were, what I loved about it is it worked seamlessly it didn't feel clunky at times speed ramping you know with the frame rate and everything how was that pulled off and how did you guys plan for that sequence we shot all of that pretty much all of the the moment the intimate moments the moments where the camera was in there with them we shot handheld on a on a phantom and we just knew every beat that we needed we kind of shot listed that down like the look up you know and we want to see like the chin, the head come up into the chin for the headbutt or into the mm-hmm. eye for the headbutt. We want to want to capture all those moments and really um, isolate it so that that shot tells that story. And so we would just we would set it up and we would find it and make sure get the actors to do it, make sure it was working, and then just execute it that way mm-hmm. and make sure that it, when we would watch it back and we had playback on that, so we would watch it and just make sure it was working. And if it wasn't, we would tweak it and redo it. And we kind of shot that all of those little headbutts and all those little looks and those moments there we shot shot by shot you know mm-hmm. it wasn't like we just rolled the whole fight in there we just kind of because a phantom only rolls for you know whatever it is 15 seconds or something like that so we just do these bursts but we just got that one angle worked it out burst get it and then move on to the next mm-hmm. and um and that was actually a great way to get it to really feel as put together as it did i feel like it, i feel like if it was if we shot it on say the mini and we were just rolling it wouldn't have had the same yeah. effect and what was the inspiration behind that perspective to try and get into yeah. tyson's head i think yeah you know as much as possible to make sure that it was understood from him mm-hmm. because in the end like afterwards what happens is you know you hear his frustrations about it he's like he felt like the victim the way that we told the story, at least he felt like the victim. He felt like, you know, he was headbutted un- unfairly twice mm-hmm. and that they weren't 
on him for it. They weren't like the rest weren't doing anything about it. He felt like he was, so we wanted to make, so that means it was very personal to him, mm-hmm. you know, and he was, he was really noticing all these things and all these moments that he, he felt betrayed by, by all of it. So we wanted to make sure that what we were capturing was really personal to him, yeah. not to Holyfield. And when you guys were shooting it, did you know that the voiceover was going to be there helping to like navigate that fight? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I really liked is the way that, um, it just told that story. You know, you said it's very, the, the series is very like vignette based yeah. where you're going from one, from one time period, from one event to the next. And then you're in something like this where you're only seeing the fight for, I mean, maybe on screen for what, like two, three minutes, the fight plays out and the way the narration helps navigate that there's the parts where you have to break the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. It was very seamlessly put together. Was the script always that way? Or is that something that you and director X tried to like put together yourselves? I think, I think the script was, always that way it was always written with his voiceover in there and it was always they were very tight you know mm-hmm. the scripts are very tight yeah. yeah and what were some of the challenges just from this shoot did was there anything that you walked into that you weren't quite expecting or was the overall like shoot pretty straightforward i mean the overall shoot was straightforward to an extent i mean we had mm-hmm. our challenges we were in the height of covid so we had people crews going down and things like that that we had to deal with but we had a great production team that kind of kept the ball rolling and i'm sure they dealt with a lot more than i got to know but um, you know, we lost locations and had to move. Like we were, we were based in New Orleans, but then we ended up doing a week in Alabama and that was because we, we lost the center that we were going to do the, the, uh, the arena that we were going to do the fight mm-hmm. at. So our producer, Jason Robertson knew of a place that he had just shot at in mobile Alabama. So we went out there and, um, you know, but we, you just got to roll with it. Like everything, yeah. like every show has something. Yeah. No, I've never been on a show that hasn't had issues and hopefully one day I can, but I, you know, like, I think every show has its thing and we, right. and the part of it is that we have great minds coming together. We have talented people we have, uh, and it's just a machine that can, we can overcome these things if we think clearly Absolutely. on it. And what advice would you have for a cinematographer that might be entering a show where they didn't shoot the pilot episode and they have to prep to be able to match a look? What is some of the advice that you could give them to just be able to tackle that I would say um, I can speak to, on that from both sides, and it's really about watching everything that's been done, watching, going through the stills if it hasn't been cut together yet, going through the stills, going through the edits as you can, understanding the idea, and have conversations with mm-hmm. everybody, the showrunner um, and the, uh, the DP who started it. <clears throat> Um, that's something that I did. I called up Isaiah and, and we talked for however long, an hour, and just talked everything. Talked about lenses, talked about ideas, talked about working with the cast and just all everything, you know, mm-hmm. and just had an open conversation just to kind of understand as much as I could going into it. Do the DPs ever come to set just to check in or anything like that? Or is it typically just on your shoulders to pull it off? Is there anybody there that makes sure that there's any, you know, the scripty or any type of just coherency across the board? On this, no. Yeah. There can be. It depends on the yeah. show. If you're on a show that's alternating, you know, and it's ongoing and like when I did Riverdale, that's what it was. Oh, well, Riverdale, I did every episode on season two, but then when I got into the next one, it was that. Mm-hmm. It was alternating. So, yeah, you're around. The other DPs are around. Script supervisor could be there. The script supervisor wouldn't say anything about the yeah. look or anything, but they would they'd be there to answer questions if we did this before or right. if that's accurate to how it was shot last time. Yeah. But, um, 
Usually no. I think it's really on you as a cinematographer to make sure that you understand what was done right. and to make sure that you're, you're working that and working with that in mind and, and being honest with it. Absolutely. Cause, um, and you can have, you know, the showrunner will let you know they should, yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to get to that point. You don't want to have that conversation because yeah. that means that you, you're not doing your job, you're probably not doing your job. Yeah. yeah. Considering this nomination, is there anything that you're really proud of with Mike? Is there a certain scene shot, something that you're like, wow, I pulled this off and now you're getting the recognition for it. You know, when I read the script and found out that it was the, um, the Evander fight, that was exciting. So I'm, I was just happy that we got to do that and highlight that moment in, in Tyson's life. And, um, you know, I think we pulled it off. I, I really liked the way that mm-hmm. it kind of cut together and, and I, I'm happy with what we did and I'm really happy with the collaboration with X. So yeah, I mean the whole episode, the whole series had a lot going for it that I was excited about. So I was yeah. just happy to be part of it. Absolutely. And just with TV in general, this is always a thought that I have. Do you prefer, and I know it's not always the case, some shows, it just takes a lot of people, you shoot certain episodes at the same time, but do you prefer when you're able to shoot the whole series or do you not have any issues coming in as a DP and doing, say, episode seven and eight? I mean, it's always nice to set it up. Yeah. You know, I uh, I set up more than I haven't, but it's... If the show is really strong and there's a great DP behind who started it and you came into it in the middle because whatever happened, happened and they needed, you know, there's nothing wrong. Like I, I enjoy that process and just being part of it. Like something mm-hmm. like this was just great to be part of. So no, I embrace it all. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing is like, I love to shoot and yeah. you know, if we can tell great stories, it doesn't really have to always be the setup and you know mm-hmm. doing the finale was it's just as good yeah you get to be a part of the team and you obviously this was your first time working with director x right yeah so this is a collaboration that got you to be able to do the next project which is falling back yeah uh with drake so you know you got to do this first project with director x it seems like you guys had a great collaboration what was it like knowing that there might be other projects is this something that he pitched shortly after mike concluded how did it start to get the ball rolling to this next one you know what it 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 was quite a while later i think it was it was many months later that uh falling back happened and i was talking with x and just you know we were talking about music videos and something came up it would you know we'd talk and and then I got a call one morning to uh, to see if I would read the the treatment, and I signed an NDA, got the treatment, and they're like, "Can you jump on a plane today?" <laughs> and I jumped on a plane later on that day, and we went up and did it because the whole project was very much a last minute hush hush thing, mm-hmm. because the album and the video were going to drop at the same time, and it was all kind of a secret album, so no one knew about it. They didn't, the you know, the record label didn't kind of put anything out. Uh, as far as saying that this album was coming up. So it was all just last minute trying to keep it secretive. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we shot the video two, three weeks before it came out. Yeah. Well, if you haven't seen it, Falling Back by Drake, it's on YouTube right now. And I'd love to discuss the concept behind it. You know, it first starts out, you see Drake, it looks like he's getting married assuming probably to one person and then you have this awesome shot where you pull back and you can see no it's not one woman there's a whole line of women that he's getting married what was the concept and was this originally brought to you in the treatment or is this something that evolved on the day you hear that sometimes with music videos and what were you most excited about yeah it was definitely originally 
con- conceived that way. Like they, mm-hmm. they had planned that out from the beginning. I think that's something that X and Drake who are buddies had talked about, you know, and came up with that long before I was involved. And, uh, but we, you know, X and I storyboarded that together and, and our, he had a very clear idea of how he wanted to reveal that moment with that shot that kind of slid out and saw everybody. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Was there anything that we, that you were really excited about for the project when you saw the treatment? Yeah. I mean, working on a, you know, working with Drake on it was, was a great thing. And working with X again was, was great. I just wanted to be part of something that was cool like that and doing something really, really, uh, fun. Mm -hmm. And I saw this having all those elements of just being this big kind of mixture of, of ideas and looks and, and just, but overall just being a a fun project to do. And, you know, having the, uh, the wedding and the ceremony be this one look and then, Mm -hmm being able to bring out the, uh, the Dan band, which is the band that comes out in the mm-hmm. middle for, for a moment, which was just the a reception. lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then going into the after party where it's a completely different vibe and it's just kind of, you know, blue mm-hmm. or light. And, and what was the overall inspiration? Were you guys trying to capture something specific or where did the idea come for the look? Um, the idea for the look itself, I, I, I to be honest, I think Drake had these specific shots that he had found that he showed to, you know, the X to X me. And it was like these shots of, uh, this art installation of Mm -hmm. light. And that was kind of the one thing that we saw. So we ended up researching how to do it. We brought in different lighting designers from rock shows. We had brought in some band, uh, some lighting designer from the grateful dead who used Mm -hmm. to tour with the grateful dead. And they did a bunch of stuff for us. And then we brought in another, uh, a few different types of, lighting designers with their own lighting setups and they're all different mixers of lasers and different types of interactive lighting. And mm-hmm. so we worked on what that could be. And we had, you know, a pre light day where we set it all up and tested it and picked our colors and picked our moments and, and kind of how we would execute that. Um, but yeah, no, it was a lot of fun yeah. to kind of to look at it and shoot it and, and discuss it and then figure out what, how to make it better, how to yeah. make it what we wanted. And what I really loved is it might look simple, but I would love to hear your process shooting such a large space too, especially with that many extras. Let's just talk about the ceremony when they're all about to get married and uh, there's the audience there. There's the whole line of women. How did you go about trying to plan that out with your with your you know electric team, your GIP team to be able to light them properly? Yeah. It's a really good question for that shot, especially because we shot that in uh, the Fairmont Hotel in in uh, Toronto, and uh, it was on the third or fourth floor. I can't remember. It was up there, and there was no way to light anything from the streets. We were looking at if we could put condors down below and light through the windows and keep consistency that way. And all of that was shut down. There's just it was just impossible. It was on a major street and too high up. Um, so I, I ended up putting big balloons in the ceiling. I think I had two of them, and then I ended up just adding HMIs all around. There's, I think behind the group, behind the audience, there was a, um, like a little faux balcony. And I put HMIs up there that I could pop into the ceiling in the corner above the windows and let it kind of bounce back onto the lineup of the brides and and Drake and his groomsmen. But that was our first day of shooting. And I, and here's a lesson is it because I remember fighting, not fighting, but I remember really pushing hard to make sure that I could have all those lights, all those balloons and all those, all that gear there. And they went for it, but it was a fight. And I remember, I think it was like, we were supposed to get in there 
I can't remember, 11 o'clock in the morning, something like that, or noon or whatever it was. But that ended up getting pushed by many, many hours. So by the time we actually got to those shots, it was almost nighttime. And so we had to kind of think last minute how to accomplish that to make sure that it matched with the first. So we ended up doing those the first shot of the reveal of all the women and, and then the shot on, on Drake and all his men uh, before lunch and before we lost the light. But then we ended to go, we had to go back and do that big wide, that crane shot that you see pulling up where you see everybody. And the only way we could accomplish that at night was to hide lights that were hidden in the window seals. So I took as many flat lights as I could and I pushed them up in the window seals and we had curtains just hiding the source itself. But if you look at the shot, you can see that it's, there's light coming from there. But if you kind of see the glass itself, you can tell it's getting pretty dark out the window. But it was the only way that we would have achieved that. If we didn't have all those balloons, if we didn't have mm-hmm. all that, you know, that safety set up for us, we would have actually been in a lot, you know, would have been yeah. worse. <laughs> been was a there a certain trouble. reason they were so stuck to that location considering all of the logistics? Everything was just based there. Yeah. You know, I mean, everyone was staying there. Um, there yeah, it was just, a, that was our home base. That was the base for the party afterwards as well. We were just in the next room over. So yeah. Yeah. And then for the reception, you were saying this is where specifically you brought in those lighting designers to be able to do a lot more of like the laser effects. Yeah. How did you guys map that out? Did you let them do their job or were you trying to tell them based on the composition, we want things here, we want things there or more or less? It was both really. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely talked about where I needed things and I placed lights where I wanted them and then they would run through their system, you know, and show me what the lights could do. And then mm-hmm. we would pick what we liked you know we could pick this one that one and then um i let them program some stuff like show me show me you know a sequence mm-hmm. and they would go off and spend 10 minutes programming and trying different things and we would tweak it and make it faster shorter different colors or whatever it was and come back and just rehearse so we had we had, i think we had one full pre-light day for that and um and then i think even in the morning we, sh- we were able to kind of get into pre-lighting yeah. and, and finalize all that. How many days did you spend shooting it? Two days. Yeah. Two short days. I, I, I mean, there were long days for us working, but I think we only shot with Drake for like six hours a day, seven hours a day. Yeah. And what is your thought process like going into a music video, say, versus a miniseries like Mike? Does it change very much or is it relatively the same for you? I think it changes a bit. I mean, I mm-hmm. definitely try to make sure that I'm truthful to whatever project we're doing, Mike knowing his narrative, and we have to make sure it makes sense narratively on a linear path, whereas music videos, you don't necessarily have that. But so the inter- interesting thing about this video was the beginning we shot really like a narrative in the sense that we set up a shot, we did that moment, we didn't run the whole thing. Because as you notice, there's no uh, to-camera performance by Drake. Mm-hmm. So it's really just getting these shots, and we were just telling it narratively like that. But once we got to the, the party afterwards, it was, you know, different. Mm-hmm. We, we just, we rolled the camera for a while and we would run in there with, with everyone on the floor and we'd just kind of set up shots, find moments, find different angles, keep mm-hmm. it rolling. And it was really more freestyle that way. So it was, definitely nothing you would you know you wouldn't do that in narrative right and what kind of advice would you have for someone that might be their first time working with a larger artist like drake is there anything that you would give them in terms of preparation do's and don'ts as a cinematographer or what you should consider for lighting i think it's really just making sure you understand what they're 
you know, what their uh, image is, mm-hmm. you know, and make sure you understand what they're trying to get across and not go against that. Yeah. And is there anything particularly with this music video that you're really proud of? I mean, I, I'm really proud of what we did in the time we had, and yeah. I'm really proud of the way that I think everyone looked. And, you know, I think it was a lot of fun. I love the contrast of everything that we put in there, the contrast between the, the two moments, the timelines. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we played around a little bit. We we shot that on the Mini LF as well. Mm-hmm. We shot with um, Vantage 1s. And we shot with uh, K35s. And why did you pick those tools? Um, we wanted to really just make sure. Well, so the bandage ones I use a lot for the opening ceremony. And I wanted to, something that, like when those are wide open, they're so soft, you know, and they're really bloomy and kind of just really pretty lenses. Mm-hmm. They have a look for sure. I mean, something that you don't want to, um, can't use for everything. But for this, it kind of felt right. And I, I remember at first I was, shooting them around like a, a two or one and a half in it. And then as soon as I opened them all the way up, it just felt like the right thing for that. So we did most of that that way. And then when we got into the reception and the party afterwards, we, we switched over to the K35s, something a little crisper, but they're lenses that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just felt like the right thing, you know, to still have that kind of vintage feeling, but not uh, nothing as, as bloomy as, as what the vantages were giving us. Yeah, the Vantage is really nice. And what what camera did you say you used? We're using the, the Mini. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. So with this music video, um, you said the turnaround was relatively quick, too. It was about two weeks before the album dropped and then the music video dropped. Did you know that going into the job, how quickly it was going to turn around? No. I didn't. <laughs> I remember getting the getting a link to the video like right the day that it came out and I was like oh, I'm not ready you know yeah yeah did surprising. you have a chance to be there for like the color grade or anything like that I did yeah, yeah yeah they did that here in LA so I went to company three and was was uh was there for a little bit of it not all of it but yeah and how does that work for a show like Mike that has a set look are you involved in the color grade process at all for your like specific episodes I was I was actually there on the same day doing both Drake oh, and wow. and that which is funny for I mean, for Mike, I was there multiple days, but um, I think the last day I also worked on the Drake video. But um, no, they definitely give yeah. give uh, whatever DP did that episode yeah. does a coloring there. But you, what I did and what I, I hope most DPs would do if they're ever in that situation is I said, make sure that it's the look of the show. I don't want to change yeah. that, but then here's my ideas and here's how I want to kind of see this scene. But let's make sure that we're living in the world that the show should be yeah. in. And do you use for a show like Mike, do they use the same colorist for each episode or is it a different colorist? I'm pretty sure they use the same colors for yeah. each episode. I mean, who did both of mine was yeah. the same. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. So at least they have the idea going into it, what to expect. And they're just getting yeah. your footage and be able to use that. Um, I would love to know more about your col- what the collaboration looks like between you and a colorist, what you come in ready with. Do you do any type of research or give them anything in advance to really just like prep before you come into the color bay in general or for this just in general in general yeah Yeah. i mean for my process is generally i work really hard in the beginning of the show to set up the look that i want and i work with a colorist at that time and the dit and we create our luts we shoot some test footage we bring it into the the suite we look at it play around a little bit more and we we discuss what it is and Mm -hmm. it's you know, we get to that through a bunch of things, which is just a testing like that and be 
other images that are out there and it doesn't have to be movies that are shot. It could be, and often is, but it could be still photographs. It could be whatever, something that has something that I can, we can talk about and look at. And then we just try things. And then once we find what it is, I try to maintain that throughout Mm -hmm. uh, the, the entire shoot. I'm working with my DIT every day to make sure that that what we shot that day is being, you know, treated that way, treated properly. And then when I get into post, however many months later, um, into the color, I, I try to always like, I find colorists often want to just start from scratch, mm-hmm. but I, I try to make sure that before we do that, we watch everything that we did. We see the footage that we shot and how we treated it with the DIT. With the show lot. Yeah. With the show lot. And that we are, you know, being as truthful to that and understanding why we did that. Cause often what happens I think is like, you know, you get into post and you, um, you're not in the environment anymore. You're not talking about the scenes specifically heavily, you know, all day long with the, with mm-hmm. the people that you're making it with. Um, and you might just be like, Oh, the shot looks cool. If we add a little teal to it or something, you know, or whatever that, whatever that is. And we just, but you get out of the intent behind why you did that right. in the first place. So I think it's very important to always re- make sure that you're watching it the way you did it first keeping it that way if that's what's still right. And if not, then at least you have that base, you know, and you know where you came from and why maybe this new look works. Mm-hmm. But I always try to make sure that uh, I come in as prepared as possible um, on both ends, in the beginning and at the end, with everyone who's touching the color so that yeah. they know what I want. Yeah, you definitely wouldn't want, you definitely would not want to have a reinvention while you're in post. No, but it happens. Yeah. You know, it, ha- it happens and it happens for scenes. Sometimes it happens because scenes are put in different orders. Like I, for a good example, of that actually is child's play. We did the scene in, um, in this basement of the building where, you know, the superintendent gets Chucky and he finds Chucky and he's kind of trying to, you know, bring him back to life so he can sell him. That's his, you know, and he's, and we shot it as a day sequence and it was supposed to be, and there's all these little windows at the, at the top behind him where we pushed daylight through it. But the way that they had to put it in the cut, came in much later and it came in between some night scenes so now we had to make this day scene that we shot and planned and prepped for as a day scene to make it a night scene so not only do you change the way that that um that color feels we had to make it a little cooler and bluer Mm -hmm. and bring it down but then we have to change how the light on the inside reacts to that and complements that so we kind of play with our highlights and differently than our shadows and we're you know we're balancing that way and we're kind of reinventing it a little bit at that point. And that's just what you have to do. Yeah. You know, that was out of our, that was, you know, there's nothing I could do at that point to go in and say, no, you got to put, you know, I can't say right. put the scene back where it was. So we have to make a way to make it work. Yeah. Because I was going to ask, what do you do when you feel like it starts becoming a runaway train or maybe you're not present in the color for the color grade and you come back, what's the best way to navigate? Even if ultimately you have to settle for something what is the best way to navigate that to not be like a problematic DP, but you're saying, Hey, you know, this wasn't quite the look that we were going for and we're straying away from what the original intention was for whatever it is, TV show, music, video, film. Is there a, for a cinematographer that maybe has never entered that type of scenario, what is the best way to navigate those waters? You would have to, I would say you have to, um, understand their perspective and why they're in that situation and explain that to them why you think it's not working in a very 
constructive way. You yeah. know, you don't want to come at it saying, Oh, you're, you're fucking this up and changing it. You know, <laughs> like you can't, you can't make them feel bad because it's not going to do anything good for anyone, but you just have to talk constructively about it. And sometimes maybe they, they forget about those initial ideas and they'll come back to it and be like, Oh yeah. Okay. That was better. Oh, that is why we did that. That's right. But, um, you know, filmmaking is just such a collaborative art form right. that we all have to work well together. It's the only way it's going to work. The project's going to turn out good is if we all work well together and, you know, headbutting with ideas and people is just not a, a productive way. Yeah. So I think, you know, if you're coming in, if you're, but if, but I will say this, if you're very strongly opinionated on something, speak up, right? Just do it the right way, but speak up because if they don't hear you, you know, if they don't hear your opinion on it and then it's done, show comes out later, you're talking about it with them. And they're like, well, why didn't you say that in the first place? You know, you don't ever want to get in that situation either. Mm -hmm. So you got to make sure that you speak up and your voice is heard. Right. And with these projects, right, they're two different ones. We have a TV series, then we have a music video. You've done feature films. Do you find yourself gravitating to a certain medium that you like best? Or do you enjoy just participating in all of them? I kind of like to do them all. I mean, I definitely enjoy features because I love the idea of um, a beginning, middle, and end where a project mm -hmm. fully completes itself. But some series can be like that, like, you know, this last one I did was an anthology. So that has a beginning, middle and end, um, you know, and, and the way that limited series are now, it's just much, there's a lot of freedom there creatively. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I do, I do definitely enjoy features. Yeah. Do you find it a, a bit harder with the pacing in pacing, not in the actual show, but in principle, a little bit harder for TV shows or TV series? Because you guys sh typically shoot a lot quicker than, say, a feature, right? Yeah. 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 It's definitely faster. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the nice thing is on a bigger show and a bigger uh, series, there's a lot of support there. Meaning mm -hmm. like there's a, you have a, a great crew, you have a lot of people. Um, if you can get ahead of things, if people are, are thinking 10 steps ahead, you can really plan it out properly. And, you know, a, a big show will kind of help support your vision as much as they possibly can within whatever limits they're in. But, um, how much time do you typically get for prep on a TV series? It's, it's however many days that episode shoots for. Yeah. Unless it's the first uh, episode of the year. Yeah. Um, so like the show I did them, we prepped for, I think a few, like four weeks of prep for the first one. And then we shot for 11 days. And so, mm -hmm. but we block shot. So it was, uh, you know, 22 days of shooting episode one and two together. And then, so that other DP came in and he prepped for that time. And so you get 22 days that way. But if it's just a one episode at a time, you, yeah, it's just your 10 days or 11 days. And how does that work? Explain what you do, what you were just talking about block shot or shooting. Block shooting. Yeah. So block shooting, sometimes a series will structure it that way where you do, rather than shooting one episode at a time and completing it, you'll shoot two episodes together and you'll crossboard it so that you can take, say, a location that you come to between two different episodes, you can shoot them on the same day um, so you don't have to travel as much and it just helps kind of keep the schedule a little bit more efficient that way. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it also means you're shooting more out of order. Yeah. Because you might on on one day you'll shoot some some things from uh, episode one and some things from episode two and and then you go back the next day to episode one again so it kind of helps it 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 kind of uh, just makes that a little more difficult a yeah. little more of a challenge but we're used to that I mean we do that 
all the time anyways. Um, and what are some of the tactics that you use to just help stay organized? Is that really on your shoulders? Obviously, I know there's other people on the team that are probably helping to like facilitate this. But do you find that you run into more challenges block shooting? Would you prefer doing it episode by episode if you could? I think I actually, I don't mind the idea of block shooting. Yeah. I, I, I like it because it, I feel like we do gain a little extra time to be creative Mm-hmm. Because we're not traveling quite as much, you yep. know, if it's a show that's on the road a lot, especially. Um, and it also means that you're you're doing those two episodes with the same director. And if you're on a show where it's episode 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 by episode, you're often working with different directors more. And I like when it's just, you know, I would rather do a show with one or two directors. Yep. You know, it, it just makes it more the entire thing more uh, cohesive. Yeah, and. Um, so I don't mind that at all. And as far as like planning it for me, there's obviously, you know, the ADs scheduling helps a lot. And I work, I've always worked really closely with the AD to schedule the best, uh, for what I need out of it. And I'll, I'll talk to them about that in prep. Um, but I, you know, I have my own thing. Like I'm, I break down scripts in my own way and I break da- break them down scene by scene for mm-hmm. the look and what I want out of it. Uh, I, Lately, I, the last few years, I, I feel like I'm playing around with lenses a lot. So I'm, I'm always kind of making, keeping my notes of where I'm at. And so then when that day comes and that scene comes, I can kind of reference what I had initially thought and planned out and then, you know, execute it that way or, yeah. or adapt. When it comes to TV, how do you as the DP, say you're in a series where you're shooting a lot of episodes, but the director is the one that's changing out. How do you go about working with that type of collaboration? Yeah, that's uh, you know, that's something I did a lot early on. Like in Riverdale, mm-hmm. we I did twenty two episodes, and it was probably eighteen different directors, nineteen different directors, and that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's a big challenge because, you know, every director will come in trying to make the best show they can. There's, that's not, you know, they don't come in trying to mess with your show, but you have to try to make sure that. I take the responsibility at least right in Riverdale. I took it very heavily of making sure that it was maintained. Mm-hmm. And if they were doing something, if I thought they were doing something that was completely out of the box from the show, I would talk about it. I would bring it up. I would say, you know, this is my opinion. We should do it this way or, or this is completely different from anything we've done. This doesn't feel like the show. Um, and if they're really strict on doing it, then I say, well, let's also get this, you know, let's also do this kind of an idea. So we have the safety. That's a good note. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, when I was, when I was doing Riverdale, it was, it was early on. So it was like, it was, it was a challenge for sure to be able to kind of have those conversations with, with directors and make sure that they understood what I was after and that I was really trying to maintain the show. And I would always have these conversations also with my showrunner and say, like, do you want me to speak up? Do you want, do you want this from me? And they would pretty much always have said yes. Um, and, and I would, you know. Yeah. And what is the best way to navigate that? Say you've never been in a position like that before. What a really good note that I took was you say, okay, if, you're, if we're going to do that, let's make sure to get this as just an alternate in the event. But how do you approach that without pissing off the director, knowing that, okay, well, it is the director mm-hmm. that is going to like lead the charge with the actors and I am the DP. Is there like a way to just breach that and have that discussion? 
you know, it's like everything we've been saying really, it's like just going in and understanding their position where they're mm-hmm. coming in from, you know, they're, they're trying to make the best show they can. Yeah. And, um, and not being totally disrespectful of that, just yeah. trying to understand it. And, you know, sometimes like film, you know, filmmaking is extremely intense at times. Like, yeah. you know, you're working long hours, you're, it's late, it could be three in the morning and people are short, they're at it, you know, you're, people just get a little irritable easily yeah. and, and you gotta, <laughs> and some, and you have to watch how you say it. Cause sometimes you might come across the wrong way and it's, you know, it happens, but you have to hopefully find a way to, to, you know, to not be like that. And the good thing with a show, like say Riverdale, for example, um, I did. So Riverdale was our showrunner. Roberto brought me for that. Children mm-hmm. Adventures of Sabrina and another show called Katie Keen. And he was very, and actually we did another pilot as well, but he would always bring out a lot of the same directors. So it, he kind of, throughout the seasons, he kind of was able to find who was really working yeah, narrow well, it down. narrow yeah. it down. And so those conversations became less and less, yeah. you know, like you would understand like, oh, you know, Maggie's back or whoever's back. And yeah. you, you'd be able to have these, the, everyone knows what, what they're doing and we trust everybody and you don't have to have those conversations. But in the early times, it's, it was, you know, it's a little rougher, but you just have to make sure that you're understanding yeah. yeah. No, that's really good notes. I always think about that when you see a show that has a lot of directors or a lot of DPs, how to maintain that coherency across it. And sometimes you do feel like it falls apart a little bit. And that's what I love when I see it a show that has like one director, one DP. It seems like there's always something to be said. And it doesn't always work that way, you know. It's not like the golden standard, but a lot of times you'll see that everyone can look back to like true detective season one and be able to point, wow, look how well that went. And why do you think we don't see that as much in TV? Is it just because of how taxing it might be on those like individuals or just logistics? Do you know why? I wish I had a better answer. I I don't necessarily know why. I, I think a lot of it is the system has been around a long time. Mm-hmm. Directors are busy going show to show, so they're not available for a whole thing. And I think unless they're running it, like really getting it going, like True Detective, Carrie yeah. Fukunaga, like that was, you know, his baby. I mean, it was an ad- adaptation from a book. But he, I think he was really behind. He met the writer and it was really... I'm going to trust you to make this, yeah. you know, to carry. And, and I think for the most part, it's not like that. They're just like, you know, you, there's a lot of fantastic directors, but they're on another show in, in a month from now. So they have this little window they can fit in. And, and yeah. I think that's how a lot of it works. So that's why when you get, I think like, like what the thing I was saying with Roberto, he would get this group and he would just keep them throughout his shows. He could do that. He had enough shows going that, and they would go off and do other things, but, probably the majority of their work was working with him for a while. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just, I, I wish, I wish that we could do it with just one or two people I wish who really it, understand yeah. it. Because when it happens, I feel like it happened, it works so well yeah. and you can see it because it's the director and the DP and whoever the creative team's vision from start to finish. And it has that carry through yeah. and it has that it's almost more nuanced a lot of times just because maybe the director has another, you know, here's a question that I have. If a director comes in and, or a DP comes in and you're still in principle for the show, how do they, 
keep up with all of the details that might have been happening in other episodes and being able to carry through on some of those details. Obviously, lighting, shooting, that's one thing. But if anything's like nuance, I don't know the best way to articulate this, but hopefully that makes sense. Well, I think, I mean, part of the prep process is really understanding yeah. what's been done, I think, especially if you're a new director coming in. And you, there's a, a, um, a meeting that would always happen with the director and the DP, ADs are often involved, and the showrunner called the tone meeting. And that is to talk about, you do a page flip, mm-hmm. and it's just you talking about what the intent of that scene is. And you, this is your time as a director to ask any question you want. Um, and you say, you know, this is where the scene's coming from and this is what they did four episodes ago and this is where it's going to go. So you understand it all and you can go through it that way and you, you page, you turn every page in the script and go through every scene and every beat. So sometimes it can last, you know, those meetings can last hours, you know, and you're just kind of discussing it all. And that should help you answer any of those questions and make sure that you're not changing the intent of something. Right. Or, or a character's arc in any way. I mean, I've, and the other thing is every, for the most part, every show has the writer on set. Yeah. And the writer is always, you know, was in the writer's room. They know the whole arc of the season and they're there to help answer any of those questions as well and help keep things on track. Yeah. With the visuals and the cinematography side of things, it's really up to you, I think, uh, to make sure that you're doing your job and understanding yeah. it and, and, keeping it real to, to what it was. Do you read the scripts for something like Tyson? Did you read the prior episode yeah. scripts leading up to it? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I read every, no matter what the show is, if it's a series and I'm not shooting, even if I'm not shooting them, I read them all. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It seems like each um, medium in filmmaking offers its own unique, you know, style, its own unique approach, creative process. And something I know you do a lot of in between projects are commercials. Have you had the chance to shoot a lot in the last year? Yeah. Commercials. I mean, commercials are great. They're, they are the great in between. Yeah. You get to go off and do something new and different and play around with different things and different gear and tools. And, um, you know, and keep busy in between. And yeah, no, I, commercials are a lot of fun to do. Were there any that you've done recently that people should try to check out? Um, I just did one that was in, uh, that should be coming. It's not quite out yet, but it might come out in the next week or two. I would imagine since it based, it was probably three, four weeks ago that we finished it. Um, I was actually just for Chipotle, but we did all this stuff on an FPV drone and we flew that camera around in a pretty fun way, shot mm-hmm. it all on a Komodo. Um, had a great pilot out. So, and why did you go fun. down that route with the FPV? Is that something that the the um, like production team or wanted to implement, or was that your idea with the director? That was implemented ahead of time. To yeah. be honest. like it was, uh, it was in the pitch that mm-hmm. they used to win the bid, and um, but it was a it was a build on what Chipotle had done in the past with other spots where they were keeping this kind of live action thing that was one take. Um, going, but we just yeah. elevated it. And I think that was a big reason why, yeah. why I came. Yeah. And what were some challenges using FPV? Being able to watch the shot back and then talk about it and make sure it gets executed. Not, like the pilot was amazing. And, but it's like, it's, you know, you fly that thing around. We're doing these 25 second shots mm-hmm. and you have to hit all these things. We were, so we we're doing it with athletes, with hockey, pro hockey players and, and soccer player. And, and, uh, they're doing these drills and we're flying the camera around and trying to hit beats at mm-hmm. certain times and wrap around them. And so it's a big dance between the athlete and the camera and making sure that we're hitting the right 
place at the right time. So it's really just about finding out what the shot is, discovering it with them and building on that. Yeah. But it was, you know, it seems hard. <laughs> it is, but it, it's, it's, it's a ton of fun. Yeah. yeah it was really cool. Cause you know, I mean, I've done a, I've worked with drones a lot mm-hmm. on, on shows, but I've never worked with an FPV drone that way where it was really like the, the, uh, the pilot is, um, his name's Alex and he, he's, he like, you know, he wins drone racing competitions and he's like mm-hmm. come in number one in the world, I think for, for a few of them. Um, and he did ambulance. Like he was the guy, that kid that mm-hmm. was discovered by, you know, by Michael, by Michael Bay. Bay. And so he, he knows what he's doing and, and that camera moves in a completely different way from regular drones. Regular drones will just kind of hover more and they're really more stable and bigger and they don't kind of, they don't, they're not quick. They don't yeah, whip sharp. around like that and yeah. sharp and th- this thing could spin and flip and do everything. Um, and so it moved completely different from anything that, you know, we were used to. Mm-hmm. that I've been used to at least. Did you drones. storyboard that? How did you guys map out the shots? I think there were initial storyboards as far as just the idea behind it. But really once, cause they were all drills with the athletes kind of, you know, he, like the hockey player, he'd, he'd start with his puck. He kind of wrap around, do some different things and get up to the goal. And we would discover it with him. Like we had an idea, the director had an idea, but then we would see how he was doing it and kind of just build on it. And yeah. that's really what it was. And, Luckily, we had, um, like in our tech day, ahead of time, we would have a stand-in hockey player who could rough out the ideas that the director wanted, and then we would just, you know, get the shot somewhat figured out, and then the next day when we come back with the actual player, we could show him that, redo it, and then just build and keep building, Mm -hmm. so... That's awesome. Yeah. And I know you have another project coming out. Are you able to talk about it at all, them? Yeah, I can. I mean, I can't talk a lot about any details, but yeah. um, it's a really cool project. Yeah. I'm really proud of that one. It was my first time working with that group, um, our showrunner, Little Marvin, and I think we did some really, really cool, really creative stuff, uh, really special work in there. Mm-hmm. Something I'm really proud of. I absolutely loved season one. Uh, it's an anthology, so it's a completely different storyline. Um, but season one, I thought was brilliantly shot and, and written. And season two, I was just really happy to be part of it. Yeah, um, we played around a lot. Like I, you know, I'll be able to talk about it when it comes out. But we played around with lensing like I never have. Mm-hmm. We played around with like moving the camera in different ways, and just really evolving the story with the camera work. Yeah, um, Lil Marvin directed one of the episodes, and that was one of my favorite collaborations I've ever had. And um, yeah, I can't wait till that. Comes Do you know out. when this comes it. out? It's supposed to come out in October. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, you'll definitely be back for that. Sounds good. And for this show, it, is it an anthology by season or by episode? By season. Mm. Yeah. What was the first season about? I don't think I know anything about this show. Uh, season one is um, it's on Amazon, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's about a uh, it's a black family that moves into a white neighborhood in the fifties, and it's a very you know mm-hmm. heavy storyline at that time, and it's about the horrors that are faced upon them and kind of inner demons and things coming out. Uh, and season two is a completely different story, but, um, kind of has some of the same basic, uh, themes, themes behind it. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. One. I'm super excited for that. Do you have any other projects around the corner? I have projects coming up that, uh, you know, I'm going to be shooting soon, Mm -hmm. but, uh, 
Yeah, and we'll get into that. Sometime. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe when, if I come back for them, we can talk about yeah, them. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, what else is going on in your realm? We're just with the industry right now. I'd love to know. There's obviously a writer strike potentially looming, and I know. I feel like a lot of younger filmmakers don't know what to make of just a writer's strike, how it could potentially just affect them. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on just, you know, the current state of film and where things are and what are you hoping to see happening in the future? You know, it's an interesting time because after the lockdown, mm-hmm. um, you know, everything exploded. Like there was so much content being made. There was all the, all the studios were like catching up on things. So there was this big boom and everyone was, was working and and this year it slowed down and with the brighter strike looming so many productions are waiting until it's over so they don't get stuck in it mm-hmm. and i've talked to so many different producers and and directors and uh you know creatives about projects and they're like yes we're ready to go once the strike's done because we yeah. don't want to get stuck in the middle of it so it's it's a very surreal time in that in that way i know mm-hmm. there was a strike i can't remember what year it was a long time ago but like 2008 or yeah, something like something that, like yeah. that. And, um, you know, I don't know, hopefully it doesn't last too long and I hope that everyone gets what yeah. is deserved and what they need, but I hope we can, <laughs> yeah. I'll get back to work. How do you navigate this time knowing that things potentially might be on hold? Do you just continue trying to like foster relationships, check in with those that you collaborate, yeah. check in just as frequently as possible? Yeah. What would you say is like the best advice for people? I would say just that really like just, yeah. you know, keep in touch with the people that you can and just let them know you're around and just make sure they know yeah make sure they know yeah. your schedule and what you're up to yeah um and if they have something you can talk about just you know let them ask to read it and you know <laughs> see what happens but uh you know i i think it really is important to make sure that people know what you're doing and your yeah. availability kind of a thing and it's like you know it's something that um my wife is a filmmaker she's a director and she's always said to me it's like it's not who you know it's who knows you you know, and it's yeah, really like, a, and it's, it's, it's truthful because I can know a million, you know, a hundred people who, if they, but if they don't know my name, they're not going to ever reach out. So you got to make sure that you're always trying to make sure that they know who you are. And it's mm-hmm. on a friendly and good note, not annoying, you know, it can't be bugging people the wrong way, but, um, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Have you been keeping up with any new tech? Is there anything that's come out like the Alexa 35? How do you feel about that? Is there anything that has been come out in this last year that you're really excited for just tech wise? The Alexa 35. Yeah. I, I haven't shot with it yet. I was really trying to shoot them on it. And we were, I think, two weeks too early. Yeah. There were just a few of them available and we just missed it. We could get one. We couldn't get enough to do the whole show. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've put down my wife and I, you know, we put down some, uh, some money on one, so we'll get one soon or we'll get two actually. But, um, what are you most excited for it? Like, what are you most excited for the Alexa 35? I mean, I just, everything I've seen with it for the latitude and the color Mm -hmm. science seem fantastic. Um, I like the idea of, you know, the super 35 and being able to open up to with that quality and open up to all these, all the lenses again. Cause the one challenge I've been finding with the mini LF is really, being able to use a big variety of lenses or at least being able to use the lenses that I've wanted. Um, because all the lenses I've fallen in love with over the years has for the most part been super 35 lenses. But, um, but when I did them, the nice thing was it was LF and it actually introduced me to new large format lenses that I had never used. So that, that was a, you know, a bonus, but 
but yeah, no, I think the the Alexa 35 seems like a fantastic camera. And everyone I've talked to who's shot with it say they absolutely love it. So. Are there any movies out right now that have been shot with it or any content that people could watch? I don't know. I mean, yeah. besides maybe shorts and commercials, commercials and yeah. things like that, things that have quick turn turnaround, I don't know if there's a film out yet. Yeah, when did the Alexa 35 drop? I feel like it was at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. Or no, sorry, it would have been... Uh, it would have been summer of last year that yeah. it started really coming out because I think we went to prep on them in June, July, and mm-hmm. we were just missing it. Dang. That would yeah. have been sweet. Yeah. When do you plan on getting yours? Uh, hopefully in the next couple of months. Are you going to have it all kitted out and everything, or are you just going to have the body? I'll, I mean, I'll no, I'll get it kitted out. Yeah. <laughs> are you going to park it anywhere? I work a lot with Keslo, so we'll see. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. I mean, my my, you know, my goal would be to just bring it on to shows that I shoot, and then yeah. if if I can, and then uh, see how it is. If it's um, if I can put it on their shelf, yeah. Afterwards, but here's a question that I have, just in terms of wellness. Our CEO Lydia always wants to know how filmmakers keep up with themselves, especially yourself, who's in a relationship with someone else. You're married. How do you, and she's also a filmmaker. So it's not like her career path or schedule is any easier than yours. How do you keep up with that? Knowing that you have to travel a lot throughout the year, you might be on a long-term project, get off of that, then do a commercial music video back on another project. How do you maintain your relationships and also just stay on top of your own health and wellness? I mean, luckily I couldn't imagine my wife, Nicole, um, you know, she's amazing. And, and it's like, if she wasn't in film, it would be so hard. I think on someone like if they don't understand your process and your time commitments to your job, um, that would be very hard. So we're Mm -hmm. very understanding of that and open to each other with that. And, uh, we, we know that career, our careers were both very dedicated to, um, she's doing phenomenal things and, and she, you know, like when I was doing them, she was in Toronto doing her movie. So we were in different countries for mm-hmm. months at a time and, and we just would check in every, you know, every day and, yeah. um, and do you guys try to set like a routine outside of just communication? Is there anything that you do daily just on top of checking in? I think we check in, you know, we're just there for each other yeah. in every way that we can be. Yeah. Um, and then staying physically act like I think being as physical as you possibly can be is a really important thing to make sure that you can make it through the long days and this grueling schedule. Cause you know, I, I try to be as active as I can. And when I wasn't before I wasn't for a long time mm-hmm. and you know, you get tired much more easily and, yeah, I think it's really you got to take care of yourself as much as you possibly can to be able to make it through like a long grind of a show. Like some yeah. shows go on for, you know, five, six months and you're on set for, you know, 60, 50, 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week, depending on the show. And that's a long, you know, that's yeah. a lot on your body. And if you're not able to kind of keep up with it, then it, it'll it'll win. Yeah. Do you have any <laughs> hobbies or anything that gets you away from filmmaking? Um. You know, my hobbies, I guess I, you know, we travel when we can. It's really about travel, getting away. Uh, right now we're redoing our house, renoing. <laughs> so just always trying to find projects to do, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, just staying creative and always looking at new opportunities. And, and we hustle, you know, my wife does a lot of projects on her own and she's producing things. And, um, 
And uh, so we're always busy. We're always keeping busy. And I know you both have had the chance to work together, which is really awesome as yeah. well. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Her first movie I was, I shot and helped her with a lot and, uh, uh, you know, helped her with meaning I was there the whole time. And it was, it was, you know, it was a great process to be able to do that with her for the first time and uh, see the movie that she made, which was, was, was great. She is an actor and did that for her whole, you know, younger life. Mm-hmm. Uh, did it forever and, and always wanted to direct and um, really made the switch a few years ago. And we shot that in Canada as well. Is um, she from Canada? She is, yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, it, and it was fantastic to be able to do that with her. And, and I'm hopeful that we get to do this next one together. She has one coming up soon that she's closing the financing on, hopefully yeah. pretty soon, and, and we'll see how that goes. But uh, That's a yeah. lot. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really exciting. And I would love to know, just as a cinematographer, where do you see the industry going? Obviously, with all of the stuff that's happening with the volume, integration integration of gaming stuff, do you see yourself dipping into that space at all? Are you trying to just stay in live action? What are some of your aspirations? I'm open to trying everything. Yeah. Like if the right project and the right group came to me with something that was far from what I've done, I would totally tackle it. You know, mm-hmm. I would want to try it all. Um, I don't know if it, I would learn, and I would learn from that if I want to keep going back to that mm-hmm. or not. I don't want to ever say no to something, but I feel like I'm a traditionalist a lot. Like I love the process of filmmaking for what it is. I, I mm-hmm. like practical filmmaking. I like to not rely on visual effects if you can. I like to, you know, set up shots and, you know, nice properly and, and just really tell the story with the camera. I, yeah. I, I find that the most rewarding is when at the end you're, you know what it is, you've seen it. Um, but there's so much new technology coming out. Yeah. And like you're saying with gaming and different things like that, like, you know. Yeah, Have you, you had the chance to work on the volume yet? No, yeah. no, I haven't, I haven't worked on it, but you know, I've shot with some LED walls and different things, which is totally different, but uh, you know, I, and that's, and I don't like that nearly as much as doing it practical. Yeah. You know, I just find just, like I find now everyone wants to just do a car shot, like interior car work on a volume or on an led wall. And I get it. You don't have to travel and it's quicker. It mm-hmm. is. Um, you can be in a studio and just bring the camera to the other side. It's not re-rigging it on a, you know, hostess trays or on process trailers or whatever. But when you look at the shot afterwards, I, it is almost guaranteed to not have the same, like soul almost. Yeah. The same right. oomph as the, you know, like it's mm-hmm. always real. It's when it's real, you get all those little like nuances in there. You feel the vibration of the camera on the car. You get the real glint of light passing from different things and you can never replicate it fully. I don't think, mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen some amazing work. Don't get me wrong. There's amazing work being done on the volume. I like Batman did some of the, the Batman did some of the most amazing stuff I've seen on that. And you know, Greg Fraser's yeah. one of the best of the best. And, um, but from what I've done and what I've seen, I feel like if I can do a practical, I'm going to try and do a practical. Yeah. And it's just really interesting. I was talking to someone the other day about live action and it was about, you know, the last of us. I don't know if you've played the game or the TV show. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is every single episode I bring in gaming somehow, but 
they were talking about the future of live action and how it's going to be changing. And for example, how the TV show and the game are two separate products. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that a lot of these gaming companies see how they know there's always going to be a large market of people that don't want to play something or want to be a part of the interactive experience, but want to still be able to consume it. But they don't want it to have it have it be two separate products. And what they're doing is they're creating the cinematics, but now it's like a cinematic for the whole game rather than being playable parts. And they're going to deliver that as a show. And I don't know if you've had the chance to play anything like The Last of Us or The Quarry is a really great example of this too. I'm just curious to what your thoughts are with just how technology is advancing. Actors' likeness can be retained without like aging. And now there's AI that's being used to create like images. It seems like a really wild landscape, specifically for cinematography too, where a lot of this stuff can now be generated or implemented in a way that for better and potentially on large part for worse could decimate the live action sector. <laughs> That's a big one, but what that's are your thoughts one. on that? <laughs> I mean, that's scary in a lot yeah. of ways, right? Like, I, I haven't played that. Yeah, you know, this I don't. I'm not a gamer, but I, you know, to hear that kind of stuff is is always a, I don't know, it's it's crazy. But you have to embrace the new technology, mm-hmm. and if you don't, you'll get left behind for sure. Yeah, but at the same time, I think you have to, based on all that, I think you have to just be better than anything else. You have to try to just be as best as you possibly can and be as much of an asset to the film production that you're working on to the director to the producers to everybody so they that no ai can replicate that you know what i mean like you have to make sure that it's not just the final image that you're doing it's the whole thing Mm -hmm. it's the working together and developing it and your ideas and just being driven to make sure that everything is as good as you can be and you got to be able to you know, on that note, like take those new technologies and know when to use them. So once you can learn, so, you know, learn them when they come your way and then have that as a tool in your pocket so that you can pitch that when the time is right. So, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And even just looking at what James Cameron did with Avatar 2, The Way of Water, I was seeing, um, I think Oren Soffer, someone shared something on his Instagram of how the VX, VFX team, like what was real and what wasn't. And it's crazy how much obviously isn't real, but then what they implement that is real and how much they change things. And it's crazy that we're at that point that technology is so accessible to be able to pull off something like that. Accessible meaning like obviously James Cameron accessible, but accessible in the sense that we're able to do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I saw Shape of Water at the DGA theater and he was there with his Mm -hmm. visual effects team talking about it and, it's pretty cool. I mean, they were talking about how like those performances you see is there is the actual performance. It's not yeah. made up. Like we took every nuance of their face and were able to kind of map this back on or you know, yeah. however they technically did it, but like that is their performance. And that's yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean that movie looked like I'm I'm generally speaking, I'm not a huge like um sci-fi fan like yeah. i mean i like sci-fi but i'm not a huge one of whole new worlds like marvel and you know those yeah. projects are are interesting um but the shape of water completely i, I was like i was into it i loved it I yeah it was a great experience to watch that movie in 3d it was like the only project i i've seen in 3d that i think i really liked yeah and i think the last one i saw in 3d was his friend the yeah first one. yeah they really don't do 3d movies no. anymore yeah it was a gimmick that just never seemed to really work i mean i think yeah. 
putting the glasses on and they never quite, I don't know, it's just, it's annoying. The colors seem, everything seems a little off. And, mm-hmm. um, but that seemed really, really good. What are some of the resources that you use to just stay educated in the industry, whether it be new tech or just a new, just to always stay learning? I feel like that's a really important part for anybody in film, whether you're a director mm-hmm. or a DP. What are some of the, the things that you do? Uh, I think, well, I read a lot about what's coming out and, and, and you know, um, what other people are doing, but shooting commercials is a great way and music videos, just being able to try different tools and, mm-hmm. and just experiment with it. And, you know, if you can go down to the rental houses and see what they have and yeah, just really just researching, mm-hmm. research as much as you can. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of amazing resources out there. I remember for me, just reading American Cinematographer was huge. When I first picked up American Cinematographer, it was like a different language. When I would start reading, I was like, what the hell is like a T-stop? What is all of this? What is that? But the more I consumed it, the more I started to understand the language and what they were trying to get across and hearing, you know, all of that. I think it's really important. Yeah, the the American Cinematographer magazine is is fantastic. I mean, if if you're not reading it and you're into cinematography, you really should be. Does CSE have a publication? They do, yeah. 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 How is that? It's good. Yeah. yeah, it's good. I mean, I, I they cover, you know, a lot of the same projects at times, and and um, but no, it, it's it's great. I mean, any kind of resource like the British Cinematographer has a great magazine, and uh, you know, I I just check them all out if you can. If there's someone, and the nice thing about the cinematography magazines, if you're into cinematography, is obviously they're talking technical, but they're also you'll find a lot of these cinematographers talking story-wise as well mm-hmm. and that's what i think is important is to make sure as a cinematographer you're you're not over you know you understand the technical so much but you got to make sure you're storytellers yeah. so be inspired by those people that are, are expressing themselves through story and knowing the technology but making sure they're true and that's the thing i was saying before like being a true asset really is coming down to being a storyteller mm-hmm. and making sure that you're supporting the story that's a really good note. Yeah. Well, we're going to open it up to some questions here for those that are watching. So feel free to file those in. I know we're on a little bit of a delay. But if people want to keep up with you, where can they get at you on Instagram? What is your Instagram handle? Uh, it's just my name. I'm Brendan Ugama. Yep. Yeah. I'm on Instagram quite a bit. And um, that's really it. my website as yeah. well. But Yeah. Definitely make sure to check out his work. Mike, it's on Hulu awesome show he specifically did episode seven and eight which seven is nominated really loved the way that it looked and loved everything that you implemented and you're just collaboration with director x so hopefully we get to see more of that also if you haven't watched it yet drake's falling back the music video it is on youtube really awesome piece as well with director x so hopefully those nominations go well and we get to see you take home some awards that would be super exciting That'd be fun yeah when is the uh award show is it may 5th it's may 6th may 6th yeah do you know if they televise that or if it's anywhere people can watch i'm not sure yeah I'll, yeah i'll find out but uh well best I, of I th- luck yeah thank you I, I i'm sure that they i'm sure online somehow you can follow it yeah yeah that's exciting well dave let us know if there are any questions we got our first question in um comes really far away from you guys comes from kurt who's standing in the room with you he's our camera operator Kurt always starts us off at the top of the day. Brandon, could you share with us, who are some of your role models and some of the filmmakers that you look up to that you find inspiration that leads into your work? Um, well, I, I get inspired by 
a lot of different types of filmmakers, I think. I get inspired by anything that really speaks truthful to me um, and people that are really pushing boundaries. Of course, I have my a few favorites, like, you know, or, or people that I really follow. When it comes to cinematography, I've, I'm, you know, really taken by Greg Fraser's work and Deacon's work. You know, I, I find them making some just amazing, amazing things, amazing imagery, um, great storytellers. Um, and directors and filmmakers, you know, it's it's a variety. It's really like I, I like the, you know, a lot of the greats, uh, the Spielbergs and the, you know, Kubricks and Kurosawas and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I watch a lot of older films from on Criterion Channel because I find some of those masters are just like the best people you could possibly learn from because they didn't have the they didn't have the uh, the new digital technology to rely on fixing things. You had to make sure every shot worked perfectly, and they were, you know, mm-hmm. great at it. Um, to some of the newer filmmakers who are just really pushing boundaries right now and doing different things and and uh, showing us new ways to look at at images, like I mean, the Daniels, for example. Yeah, you know? um, they were great. Yeah, I loved everything, everywhere, all at once. I even loved their first film, Swiss Army Man. Yeah, Swiss Army Man's so fun. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, think about that that voice. I mean, that without them, before that, like, imagine pitching that 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, uh, they're doing some really cool things. And, and I think there's a lot of new filmmakers coming out, and I'm, and I'm not saying they're new, but uh, there's a lot of filmmakers that are pushing these boundaries to tell stories in different ways and have a unique voice and a new a new way to see things and look at things. And I think that's really exciting. Has there been anything specifically maybe recent that you've watched that really blew your mind outside of like everything everywhere all at once? Um, cinematography wise, I, you know, I, I was, a, I really liked, um, there's a couple of films and they're all maybe pretty different, but I really liked tar. I thought tar, tar was, was shot great. just absolutely brilliantly. Um, and I loved Blonde. I loved the way that Blonde was shot. Um, I think it was one of the most original. And mm-hmm. it's just beautiful. Frame by frame. It's so emotional and so intimate. You know, yeah, I think Chase, Chase did an amazing job. He's incredible. I love all of his work. But I that was personally my favorite shot movie of last year. There's yeah. just something about his perspective, the way the camera moves. And sometimes it feels intentional, unintentional. Just the way, even when he set the camera down on the floor, I don't know if you remember that yeah. shot. I was like, that's that's interesting and it's different. I just wish that movie would have been looked at in a better light. Yeah, I kind of understand where people are coming from. It is a very one-note film, but I personally really enjoyed it. And I thought what him and Andrew Dominic did was awesome. Yeah, but agreed. Hopefully more people watch it. Yeah. It was a shame he didn't get nominated. I, I thought he would have. I thought he would have. I thought he should have. I think he yeah. should have, but, you know. Yeah. I highly recommend it. Yep. This one comes from uh, Chris. Chris asks, you seem to use a lot of great deal of color contrast in your lighting and the approach to your lighting. How do you balance the surreal versus realism? That's a good question. Um, I think you really have to just feel it out. Like what I try to do is, is understand the overall mood that I want a scene to to be and I think of what color will help and tone will really help feel that and then I work when it comes to color contrast I'll just try to work with complementary colors as much as I can to um, give as much depth and balance to the shot and I guess surrealism versus realism is I'll push 
if it's a show like Sabrina, for example, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina or Child's Play, where we can push the surrealism more, those color, colors will become richer and more, uh, you know, rock and roll kind of color palettes rather than realism colors. I, I think I'll push that a lot harder in those shows. And then when I feel like a show should be based on a little more reality or realism, like the show I just did them, I'll bring that in a bit and it'll mm-hmm. be still working with some color contrast, but not quite as heavy handed, not like bright reds next to bright blues um, or whatever, you know? And, and I try to make sure that, that uh, I'm always conscious of that and like planning that out and plotting it. That was a really good question. Yeah. You got another one. Ready? Yeah. This question comes from Jonathan. Jonathan asks, if you could go back in time and tell yourself one piece of information when you were just getting started, what would it be? And what would you tell yourself to do? Hmm. That's a good one as well. Um, no pressure. But just like <laughs> <one>. <laughs> yeah. Or many things. Yeah. I think really... I would tell myself to, I think it would be more to just um, concentrate as much as I can on on the now, on telling the story. Don't get caught up in trying to like, you know, outdo anyone or outdo anything. Don't compare yourself to anything. You know, that's the hardest thing when you're coming up. I think you see other other people around you and you judge yourself to them if they get a bigger break at one time and you might be really hard on yourself for that, but I, you can't because that's not going to do anything anyways. Um, but I think you really have to make sure that you're just in focused in the moment of, of what you're doing and make it the best it can possibly be. Um, yeah, I don't know if, if that really answered it, but... But I would I would say I would say to anyone coming up, really explore as much as you possibly can. Take on everything you can um, within reason. You know you don't want to do something that you think will hurt your career in any way. But make sure you're t- telling as many stories as you possibly can, and focus really hard on making sure that you're doing every, you're putting everything into that. You know, never take it for granted. Never, you know, do a half-assed job because you're not getting paid or not getting paid as much as you did on the last one or anything like that. Just make sure that everything you're doing, every frame you make is as strong as you possibly can in that moment, you mm-hmm. know, and doing, doing the best job you can and just nurture your relationships. That's really good. I remember, real quick follow up to that is, did you ever reach a point where you hit a certain age or something took place where it just all of a sudden started to click, like where you didn't stress about anything anymore. It was just like this, because obviously the freelance lifestyle kind of has like that, oh, when's the next job coming? Oh man, did I do a good job on that last project? You know, when you're in your 20s and maybe early 30s, did you hit a point where it was like, click, I'm okay? I don't think so. I, to be honest, I don't think so. I think you have to com- constantly remind yourself of that because, um, you know, we all have that, a little bit of that imposter syndrome where you, you're like, if you didn't work for a, a month or two, are you, why not? You know, you get in mm-hmm. your head and it's easy to get in your head. And I think we all do that. 
naturally or we second guess our work afterwards we watch like i have a really hard time still watching projects i I shoot because all i focus on is what i would have done differently now you know i can look at a watch any movie or show i've done and just be like i wish i did that differently i wish i did that differently instead of watching it constructively and saying oh i really like how i did that or really, really like how i did that or that really worked i for the most part it's it's just so much more it's it's hard to kind of turn that side the negative side off but you have to you know um i i, I guess within time you kind of get the confidence of knowing that something's always coming around and you're you know there's not that it'll everything will work out um i think to make sure you can you can set yourself up that way is to really just take everything on and make your grow your your um you know your circle of friends and producers and directors as big as we possibly can yeah i think it's like anything you just have to always maintain it yeah now you have to believe that there's going to be abundance and longevity you can't always be in a, be in a world of like um survival you know, but yeah. knowing that you have to maintain it and nurture it just like anything. I think that's always the best thing for a career. It's trying to just be on top of it, be present. But even if there is a law, just know that you can use this time to continue nurturing and crafting what your next project might be. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you have an, if you know what your next project is and it's maybe quite a ways away and you have a little lull in between, use that time to really do something special with it. You can, even if you're not in official prep or anything like that, you can use that time to really get a head start and make something different and, and really mm-hmm. just plan it out or, or learn, or even if you're not on a project, just learning about your craft, keeping that active and keeping that going helps for the next thing, you know, helps for anything you do. Mm-hmm. Just always understanding, like we were saying before, the new technologies and the new ideas that are out there. Well, that's amazing insight, Brendan. Well, this was another amazing Finding the Frame. It was super exciting to have our first guest back on the platform just to be able to see where you were from Moonshot to now, which you've done some awesome projects from Mike to Falling Back. And we're really excited to see where you go next. And we're really rooting for you when it comes to this Finding the or these nominations. So please stay in touch. If anyone wants to get at him, make sure to check him out on Instagram. Check out his website. He's all doing. He's always doing awesome things. So. This has been another episode. We really appreciate your time and we'll look forward to the next one. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, Do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.